All right, now we're going to get into the, the message today in uh, the book of John, chapter 4, verses, my goodness, where are we, 43 down to 54, okay, 43 to 54. And uh, just as a little recap again, what's going on here, Jesus and his disciples had left from Jerusalem to head towards Galilee. Jerusalem is where uh, many of the Jews lived, obviously, and then Galilee was another area where many Jews lived. But in between, there was an area called Samaria that uh, some of the Jews would try to avoid, or if they didn't avoid and they went through it, they didn't really stop and try to make friends along the way because they viewed the Samaritans as um, sellouts, as people who used to be Israelites, but who many years ago um, uh, intermarried with other peoples who uh, didn't accept the full word of God. Uh, They held Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to be the word of God, but not the prophets, not the the wisdom literature, and uh, they generally looked down upon the Samaritans. But Jesus told his disciples, we got to go through Samaria. And they didn't just go through Samaria, but they stopped at this town called Sychar. And there, he didn't just stop there to get some food and water, but he stopped and he engaged in conversation with this Samaritan woman at the well who came out at noon in the heat of the day because she was ostracized from her town, whether because of her own decisions that were sinful in the past or because she had been abused and and kicked to the curb by by different men in her life. Whatever it was, there was a sense of shame and separation, but Jesus engaged her in conversation. She came for water from the well, but she left there with the living water of salvation through Jesus Christ. She went to her townsfolk. She told them, come meet a man who told me everything about myself. Could this be the Christ? And the people swarmed out there, and Jesus stayed there for two days with the townsfolk, with the Samaritans. And it says many people came to know the Lord. There was a harvest, a harvest of souls there. And then Jesus and his disciples continue on their journey out of Samaritan territory and towards Galilee, towards Jewish territory again. That's where we pick up here today in verse 43, when it says, after two days he departed for Galilee, those were the two days in Samaria. So we're going to read from there. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour 
when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God. Now, I got to make a a note here of something here in the beginning that's interesting, that's potentially confusing, that um, a good amount of ink has been spilled over and a good amount of conversing and debate between the theologians about what's happening here. So he leaves Samaria, he goes towards Galilee, and then John notes here in verse 44 that Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, if you've you know, read a good amount of the Bible, you might remember that that sounds familiar. In Matthew chapter 13, there was um, that story about Jesus being in his hometown, Nazareth, which is in the area of Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And that when he was there, it says that Jesus didn't do many miracles there because they, they rejected him because of their lack of faith. And he said at that point, a prophet is only without honor in his hometown. So what that means is that the people of Nazareth who grew up with Jesus, who played with Jesus, who uh, you know, brought their benches to Jesus, the carpenter, to fix, they looked at him and they said, you, Jesus, are claiming to be the Messiah? You, Jesus, are teaching in the synagogue? Y- you know, hey, shut your mouth, know your role. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? We, we know you. You're a really nice guy. <laughs> no doubt about that. You're a really nice guy. Really good boy growing up. That's right. But who do you think you are? Prophet? Messiah? And, and Jesus said, only in his hometown is a prophet without honor because they, they, they think they know me. So they had no faith. I, I can relate to this. I mean, if I went back to my hometown, if I got back together with my high school buddies and they'd be like, Ulysses, what are you doing nowadays? I'd be like, I'm a pastor. They'd be like, you, Ulysses, a pastor? God must be real. God must be real. Tell me about Jesus. Right? I certainly would have a good number of people who would be like, are you kidding me? You, a pastor? I got to come to your church. I got to hear this, right? Um, that's what was happening to him. Now, So this is where things get confusing and and where theologians have disagreed about what's happening here. But in verse 45, it says, so when he came to Galilee, you would expect John maybe to say, so they rejected him because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. They're like, you, you're from Galilee. We know you, prophet, shmafit. Get out of here. What are you talking about? But it doesn't say that. It says the Galileans welcomed him. They welcomed him. So this is potentially confusing. What do you mean? Why did John write this? That Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, but then it says the Galileans welcomed him. Well, I think there is consistency here because here's the reason. Here's the reason the Galileans welcomed him. It says because they saw all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Remember, Just earlier in the book of John, Jesus was down in Jerusalem. It was Passover, one of the three major feasts every year where every Israelite man was required by the law of Moses, the Torah, to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
That means, that means a lot of these Galileans from this area up north had traveled down to Jerusalem and they saw what Jesus was doing there. And he, he, he did signs and he did miracles. We know that he, he um, turned over tables in the temple and he did all of that. But when we go back to John chapter 2, remember, it says this, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So apparently he was doing some signs down there. At the end of the book of John, John says Jesus did so many signs that we didn't write down that if we were to write them all down, the world wouldn't have room for all the books that would be written. So it's no surprise that Jesus was, was doing signs and wonders uh, in Jerusalem at that time. But it says Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What was that saying? What did that mean? It means that all these people, when they saw the signs that he did in Jerusalem, they're like, Jesus, you're the man. And it says that Jesus didn't trust these people because he knew their heart. He knew what was in their heart. What was it? That these people are just impressed by signs and wonders. That's all they care about. That's all they want to see, but they don't really know who I am. That's what's going on here and that's also what's happening here in Galilee. That's what's happening here as well with those people. And, and this will be confirmed, I think, when we get to verse 48. I think it supports this interpretation of what the scriptures are saying. But again, it's such a contrast from the Samaritan village. These people who really didn't see a sign, a tiny little, little sign, right? Man, you know, you've had five husbands, man you're with is not your husband. She's like, oh, right? But he didn't, he didn't go there raising the dead, healing the sick, as far as we know. But crowds of people, hundreds of Samaritans probably came to believe in Jesus. Such a stark contrast. No signs there. They believed in him. In Israel, sign after sign after sign. But the people did not believe in who he was. So back to Cana here. He comes back again to Cana. Now, this is significant that he's back at Cana. Um, we will revisit this towards the end of the sermon, but if you remember in Cana, this is where he turned water to wine. He comes back to Cana, and there is an official. This person heard that Jesus was in town, and his son, his little boy, was very sick, sick to the point of death, and he heard that Jesus was here, so he, he made the trip from Capernaum down to Cana, to beg Jesus to heal his son. He was an official. He was probably um, an important person within the court of King Herod, Herod Antipas, who was placed as like a puppet ruler over Israel by the Roman government. So not exactly the most popular or liked fellow, but he was the king of that area. This official probably worked in Herod's court. So this was a guy with power. He, was, he had money. He had influence. But his son was dying. He heard that Jesus had come to the area and he went down to Jesus to beg him to come and heal his son. Come, put your hand on my son, heal him of this sickness so that he could live. He begs Jesus, please come down. My little boy is dying. What does Jesus do? How does he respond? It says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What? What's You know, I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus' response here, do you feel like, is that a little bit insensitive? Maybe a little bit harsh? 
I mean, the guy's son is dying. He wants Jesus, he wants you to come and heal him. I can understand that. I'm a father. Any parent could understand that. He wants you to come and heal his son. But you say, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why why so harsh? Is Jesus being harsh? Is he being insensitive to this man who just loves his son and wants to see his son healed? Well, I think the key to understanding this lies in the word you. When he said, unless you see signs and wonders. And now if you have a a Bible in front of you, you might notice that there's a little asterisk there or a little superscript there. And it says there in the definition that it's the second person plural here, right? So this is is a word we don't have in English unless you're from the South. This word is y'all, right? So Jesus is saying, unless y'all see signs and wonders, or me, I'm, I'm from New York. I was born in the Bronx. This could, this could also be interpreted, unless you guys, okay? <laughs> unless you guys see signs and wonders, you won't believe. You're not going to believe in Jesus, right? That's the New York version. Whether you're from the South, you're from New York, this is the second person plural. You all use guys. That's what Jesus is saying. So this man here says, come heal my son. When Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe, it's not, he's not just talking to this man but it's like he's turning to this crowd, to the Galileans. He's turning to all the people here. And in a way, I think by extension, he's talking to all Israel. He's talking to all Israel. Unless you people, unless you Israelites, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. What Jesus is saying to the people of Israel is that all, you're just infatuated with seeing signs and wonders and miracles. It's like, it's like you just, you know, like I'm the circus. <laughs> that's, that's all you care about. You want to see these signs and wonders. Now, signs and wonders in and of themselves are not bad. They can be a very good thing. There's a reason Jesus did them. In fact, later in John, he said in chapter 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. What did Jesus say there? He says, listen, believe that I'm from God. I'm the son of God. But if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the miracles that I did. You saw the miracles that I did, didn't you? Believe on account of those. So miracles are good. Jesus used miracles to authenticate his ministry, to let people know that he is the son of God. But here's the thing. They're meant, they're meant to be an initial means by which people come to faith in Jesus. But for these Jews, for the nation of Israel, despite all that they saw, miracle after miracle after miracle, for most of them, they never believed. Jesus became this traveling sideshow, fun to watch, so exciting, but nothing deeper than that. In fact, in, in, um, in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, This is arguably, if you look in the Gospel of John, this is like the climactic miracle that he performs before he goes to the cross. He actually raises a dead man from the grave, right? He comes out of the grave like, wow, what more sign do you need, people, that this is the Son of God? But what happened? What happened? The Pharisees, the religious leaders heard what Jesus did, and what did they conclude? It says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Not, not, not deeper faith. That wasn't the result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What was the result? The religious leader saying, well, that's going to do it. Now everybody's going to follow this guy. What are we going to do? We need to kill him. We need to kill him. That was the result. That was their response to Jesus' miracles, even raising Lazarus from the dead. So, so when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, what he is pointing to through this man's situation to all of Israel is he is pointing out how, how feeble their faith is, the feeble nature of their faith. I'm going to give credit to a pastor named Pastor Nate Wagner, who came up with this alliteration of feeble faith. That's part one. There's part two of this alliteration that I liked what he said. So I'm going to give credit to him. What Jesus is doing is he's pointing out the feeble nature of their faith. It's weak. It is a weak faith based just upon the miracles that they see Jesus doing. For this man, when he came to Jesus, he, he had a problem, he had a situation, he wanted Jesus to come because you're a miracle worker, come and fix this problem, fix my son's illness, and fix it now. That's, that's what he wanted. And friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, is this, this is a question for us, is this how we come to Jesus as well? Is this the nature of our faith when we approach Jesus? Jesus, there is a problem in my life. There is a crisis in my life. There is a hardship in my life. And what I need you to do, Jesus, is I need a miracle. I need you to fix it now. Is that the primary way in which we approach God? There's pain in my life, and I want you to fix it. I want to see a miracle because you're the God of miracles. God, somebody wronged me. You know how wrong it was for him to say that and to do that to me. God, you're a God of vengeance, right? I want, I want you to do something about this. Set this straight. Teach that guy a lesson. Make sure everybody knows how wrong he was, and I want him to come groveling to me about what he did. God, I want you to fix that. Lord, I am too young to get a cancer diagnosis, God. I got my whole life ahead of me. I got my plans, Lord God. Lord, I need you to fix this. I need you to heal me. I need you to cure me of my cancer. Or as any parent would be able to relate to, when your kid goes through something hard, when your kid goes through pain, especially if it's unjust, you as a parent just come to God and your, God, your heart is like, God, I want you to fix this. I need you to fix this. I know pain can help my son grow and all that kind of stuff, but no, fix it. Fix it now, God. I want you to change this situation. Is that how you primarily approach God? This is how Israel was approaching Jesus. And Jesus calls that a feeble faith. It's weak. It's based upon a fix-it God. And it doesn't go deeper than that. So what does Jesus do in this situation? This man, in verse 49, he says, Sir, come down. Come down. He begs Jesus, please come down and heal my son. Come with me. Accompany me. Go with me to Capernaum. Lay your hand on him and heal him so that he will live. What does Jesus say? How does he respond? 
He says, go, your son will live. The man says, come down. Jesus says, go. The man says, no, I want you with me. I want to see you. Put your hand on my son. I want to see you heal him. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go. I want you to leave this place without me. I want you to trust that at my word, your son will be healed. Come down versus go. What Jesus does here is he refuses to give the Galileans, he refuses to give the people of Israel in this instance, he refuses to give them a show. I'm sure the Galileans would have been really happy to be like, oh, Jesus is going to go down to Capernaum? Let's all go together. It's a traveling circus. Let's all go together. I want to see this. Jesus refuses to give that to them. He just says, go. You go, and you will see that your son will live. This may also remind you if you've been around the Bible for a while, of another story that was very similar, but at the same time so different from Matthew 8, when there was this Roman centurion who had a servant who was very ill, and all these elders from Israel, from the Jewish people, came to Jesus and said, please, please heal this man, heal this man's servant, because he's been really good to the people of Israel. You remember that story? And then Jesus says, what does he say? He says, I will come. I will come. I will come down to this man's house and heal his servant. But on the way there, that centurion sent messengers and said, Jesus, don't come. Don't come into my house. Please, I, you know, I know that you are God. You don't need to come to my house. All you need to do is say it, speak it, and my servant will be healed because I know how things work. I have authority. I tell my soldier to go do something. I don't need to go do it. He's going to take care of it because I have authority. You have authority. You speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. You know, a couple of the times when Jesus found such incredible faith in his ministry, they were with Gentiles, not with Israelites, like the Syrophoenician woman and like this Roman centurion. What a contrast. I will come but he said, no, I know who you are. You don't need to come. Here, with this man, though, with these Galileans, the people of Israel, he's not willing to go down. He says, you go. And this man had a decision to make. Is he going to trust Jesus at his word? I mean, how do I, how do I know if Jesus ain't just brushing me off? He's like, just go, he'll be fine. Scram, kid. Is he just trying to get rid of me? How will I know? It'd be safer for him to come with me. Then I can make sure. I can see his hands go on my son's face or whatever it is. This man had to make a decision. Am I going to trust Jesus at his word? And this is a hard thing, friends. This is hard for us. You know, we have a saying in, in, in America, seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. Hey, Ulysses, I could do 100 push-ups in one minute. <laughs> okay, show me, right? Show me. Your parents, you ever have kids come to you and say, oh, I want a puppy, Dad. I promise I will walk the puppy. I will pick up the poopy. Every day I will take it out. You don't have to do a thing. I'll do it. Okay, show me a clean room for three weeks straight first, okay? Then we'll talk about this puppy. Show me. Show me. Seeing is believing. That's, that's the motto that we operate by. You show me, then I'll believe. In the kingdom of God, the economy is different. God's economy is different. 
He says, you must first believe, and then you will see. He flips it around. You must first believe, and then you will see. And it says that the man believed the word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. He said, I will trust your word. I will take you at your word, and he goes, and he goes back home. Now, as he's going home, on the way home, he sees the servants coming towards him. You can imagine his heart racing at that moment, right? Are they, are they coming to tell me that my son has died? Who knows what they're coming to tell me, but they come in and tell him, your son, the fever left him. He's okay. He's going to be okay. And then this man is like, oh my gosh, he's rejoicing. His son's going to be okay. And then he stops and he thinks, wait a second, what time, when did my son get better? When did the fever lift him, leave him? His servants are probably like, okay, that's real specific. Okay, why do you want to know that? Well, it was yesterday at the seventh hour. And this man, it hits him like a lightning bolt. That was, the, that was the hour when Jesus told me, your son will live. That was when he told me, my son will live. He realizes that it was from Jesus. And then it says this funny thing. Right after that, in verse 53, it says, your son will live and he himself believed and all his household. But wait a second. It just said earlier, he believed in Jesus' word. He believed. That's why he left. That's why he went back home. Now he hears this news about a son, and then it says, and he himself believed. Well, I thought he already believed. What do you mean he believed? Did he not believe before? Why did he say he believed then if he's saying now he believes now? The reason, the reason it says this is because his, his first, his initial belief in Jesus was a belief in Jesus' word. Okay, what this man says to me, I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to trust him. What this prophet has said to me, I'm going to go and do what he said. But then when he saw his son be healed, his belief was no longer simply in the word of this prophet, in the word of this man. His belief became in this man himself. No longer was it just belief in a prophet and a prophet's word, but it was belief in this man as somebody more than a prophet, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. He came to a place of deeper, more genuine belief in who Jesus was. Friends, what John wants us to understand, I believe what the Bible wants us to understand is that if we want to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus, we're going to have to take him at his word. We're going to have to decide not to live in a way where I need to see in order to believe. God, I need you to heal. I need you to fix. I need you to fix my kid. I need you to fix problems for me to believe that you are good. But what I'm going to need to do is first believe that you are good, and then I will see how truly you are God, and you are faithful, and you keep all of your promises. That's what we need to do. And the question is, are you willing to take God at his word? even when it is difficult, even when it's frightening, when it's scary, to trust him and to let him lead you into a place of deeper relationship with him. Friends, this is, this is how all relationships in our, in our life work, don't they? If you want to be friends with somebody, you have to first trust them. 
that this person is nice, that this person will care about me, that when I share things, that this person will maintain confidentiality, that this person really cares about me. You have to take a risk. You have to trust that this person will be a good friend. And when you take that step and the friend comes through and the friend is faithful and maintains privacy and cares about you and is there for you, it leads to a deeper relationship with this friend, doesn't it? You have to make that decision too. Are you going to trust this person before you marry him or before you marry her? You say that you love me. You say that you want to spend eternity. Eternity. <laughs> rest, rest. Okay, maybe. Uh, I would doubt that too, right? You want to spend the rest of your life together with me? I have to decide am I going to trust you or not to take that step of faith? And if I do, and if you are who you say you are, then that leads into a deeper relationship in that marriage of trust, of a deeper, more wonderful relationship. Or I think the best illustration of this is in Terminator. Back when Arnold Schwarzenegger comes as a killer robot from the future to Sarah Connor, this robot that kills humanity, and he says to her, come with me if you want to live. I trust this killer robot or not, you know, like I have to make a decision here, but she does, and that leads to salvation for humanity, right? Whether in fiction or in real life, but certainly here in our relationship with God, God challenges our faith to say, will you trust in my word? When we do, it leads to a deeper place of relationship with God. Friends, when, when, if when you face hardship or, or the various crises that come up in life, because they will come up, it is not a matter of if, but when. Crisis and hardship will come up in your life. If the main way that you relate to God is through this fix-it mentality, do a miracle right now, that's the main way you relate to God, then friends, you might be one crisis away from walking away from God. You might be right now sitting in this room one crisis away, one severe hardship away from walking away from God, if he doesn't come in as the fix-it man and take care of your problem and take your pain away immediately, is that where you are? Because that is a feeble faith. That is a feeble faith. That was the faith of Israel back then. But if we are willing to trust God in the midst of crisis, in the midst of hardship, that is the path that would lead us into a deeper relationship with God, friends. But the choice is yours. What are you going to do? Friends, I'm not saying that, hey, if you trust God now, God is automatically going to answer your prayer later, right? Like, okay, not now. Okay, God, a week from now, I can wait. Okay, a year from now, that's tough. Maybe I can wait. 10 years from now, you better do it. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe he will. Maybe he will answer that prayer and take away that hardship. Or maybe his answer will be no. Paul experienced that. God, take away this thorn from my flesh. Take this thorn out of my side. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He said no. Listen, if any of you, anybody who's been a Christian for a while, you, you know what I mean when I say there were things that you used to beg God for that today when you look back, you go, oh, thank you, God, that you did not say yes to that. Thank you, God, right? God, if you don't give me this girl, my life will end, please. You look back, you're like, oh, thank God. Thank God that it wasn't her and that it was Christine. Thank God, right? 
Like, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we just, his answer might be no, but it's not because he's not good, but it's because we lack wisdom, because we don't have the omniscience to God to see everything. Or maybe, maybe what it means trusting in God is trusting that God in his answer to our prayers, in being faithful to his promises, sometimes they don't even happen in this lifetime, but they do happen. They do happen. And that if it takes until the return of Christ, it doesn't matter. God is faithful to his promises. You know, when we look at Hebrews 11, there is this famous passage about the, tis so sweet. There's this famous passage back in Hebrews 11 about the hall of faith. The hall of faith. Okay. Where the author is talking about these guys who are really renowned for their faith. One example of that was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who God said, leave your country and go to the promised land that I'm going to give you. And what did they do? They obeyed God. They left their land. They went to the promised land. But when they got there, it's like, God, there are people living here already. <laughs> there are people in this house already. And they lived in tents when they were there. And it says that they, they died in faith. They didn't receive the things promised. They didn't get the promised land. We say, oh yeah, they didn't get it, but their sons got it. David, eventually he went in, he conquered the promised land. So eventually their kids got it and God fulfilled the promise. But there is something more than that because in verse 16, it says, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am going to bet, you could ask them in heaven, but I'm going to bet that as they were there in this promised land, and they were like, God is going to give us this land. And as the years went by, there were still other people in that land. Maybe there was something in their heart that said, you know, maybe this land, we will get it. Maybe our kids will get it. But I think God wants to give us something even better than this. That this is just pointing forward to a heavenly country. That God is, when he makes all things new, when he restores, he will fulfill his promise. Brothers and sisters, the, the trust that God is asking us to place in him is a trust that may even extend beyond the borders of this lifetime. But friends, that is, that is good, good news. That is such good news that this is who God is and that he keeps his promises Look, think about it. Justice. There's a lot of talk about justice in our society in this world. You know how many people go to the grave without getting justice? How many people are there who, who experience tragedy in their lives at the hands of another person? Who go through war or genocide and, and they never see the perpetrators get caught? The Israeli Mossad is still looking for the Nazis, the war criminals, right? They're searching in Argentina, looking for them. We got to get these guys before they die. They got to come to justice. They're going to get them all? No. Many of them are going to die after living a long life. Their justice doesn't come to everybody in this world. Many people in this world will die without having justice, but not with God, because God will make every wrong right. And everyone will stand before the throne of God, whether in this lifetime or in the life to come 
they will stand before God and give account for all that they've ever done. The promises of God are the best news for those who are experiencing injustice in this world because they can know that nobody gets away with anything because God is a God of perfect justice. Or when it comes to the healing and the sicknesses that we experience. You know, when my, my mom struggled with Parkinson's for 10 years, during those 10 years, I prayed. I prayed again and again and again for God to heal her. I said, God, it's such, she's so young. It's a shame. She worked all her life and she didn't really get to enjoy her retirement. Lord, could you heal her? Could you give her strength? Could you enable her to be able to serve you and walk with you because she came to faith later on in her life? Would you heal her? But you know what? She never got healed. She never got healed. She was able to live on her own for the first couple of years and then she began to fall. She began to break her bones. Eventually, dementia began to set in. I prayed for healing for that. That progressed. That got worse. No longer could she live by herself. Eventually, she broke her hip. She could hardly walk anymore. She needed a walker. Eventually, she needed a wheelchair. Eventually, she became bed-bound. Eventually, she began to develop bed sores all over her body, all over her back. It was terrible. All this time, I was praying, God, I believe you're a God of miracles. Would you heal my mother? God never healed her of her Parkinson's. But you know what? I know that right now, the spirit of my mother is standing before the face of God in paradise. And that when Jesus returns, he will call to the earth. My mother's body will be resurrected, raised from the ground. It will be made new and perfect, never to experience Parkinson's or mental decay again. It will be reunited with her soul and she'll be before God for eternity in joy and in perfect health. I know that even though it did not come in this lifetime, that God will do it in the life to come. I trust in God's word. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't want us to settle for a feeble faith based upon a the fix-it God, the name-it-and-claim-it theology, only to walk away when, when God lets cancer strike or when you lose your job. That's a feeble faith. Not that that's not hard, but that is a feeble faith. Jesus wants us to have a ferocious faith, a faith that, in spite of hardship or crisis, says, I believe in the promises of God. And like Job said, though he slay me, I will trust in him. That is not a feeble faith based upon our circumstances. That is a ferocious faith that says, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, I will trust in God. That is a conquering faith. That is a powerful faith. That is the faith that God wants us to be able to have as we go through this life filled with pain, hardship, and brokenness. Let me close with this. In verse 54, it says here, John says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, if you've been following along here, that's kind of interesting. Why does John call this the second sign? The first sign was water and the wine. 
he did other signs. He did signs down in Jerusalem. Why is this number two? Well, there's a lot of hints about this, right? The first sign was in Cana. This second sign was also back in Cana. I think what the author, what John is doing is he wants us to put these two miracles, these two signs side by side, the water into wine, and this boy going from death to life. And I think what John is saying is this. He's saying through the water being turned into wine, this wedding feast where the wine ran out, what he's telling us is that no matter, even the greatest joys of this life are nothing without Christ. They don't compare. They fall flat. They will not be enough. They will be insufficient. Even the greatest joys of this life are ultimately not enough without Jesus. But he's also saying, through this young boy being healed, going from almost dying to life, he's saying, but at the same time, you know what? The greatest pains and hardships of of this life, it's not too much for Jesus. He will be with you. His promises, they will be with you. You can trust in him. The good is not good enough without Jesus, but the bad when they come, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said this. Now, I'm going to close here. When the, Pharise- when the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign. We want to see a miracle. He said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Because that's all you're looking for again and again and again and a sign, and then you eventually want to kill me. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. One sign, brothers and sisters. God says there's one sign that is above all signs that that if you want, you're going to put your faith in something. If you're going to bet the house on one thing, I'll give you one sign. It is the, the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate sign that you can bank your life upon. You can take all of your hardship. You can take the crises that come and you can place it upon the cross and the empty tomb to be able to say and know that if God did not spare his own son, if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? How will God leave me? How will God not provide for me? Even if not in this lifetime, he will do it in the life to come. That sign that sign is enough for me, and anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is a sign, brothers and sisters. God has given us a sign. When you're there and you're saying, God, show me that you love me. Why do I have cancer? Why am I, my kids rebelling? God, show me a sign. God says, yes, okay. Look at the cross. There's no greater sign of my love and my faithfulness and that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus and I will keep every promise of mine to you, whether in this lifetime or the lifetime to come. Brothers and sisters, let us not settle for a feeble faith. Let us determine to seek after a ferocious faith, a faith that is not based, a trust that is not based on what our eyes can see, but a trust that is based upon who God is. Where are you this morning, brothers and sisters? I invite the worship team up as we respond at this time, but brothers and sisters, where are you this morning? What is your faith based upon? 
Is it, is it based upon God needs to fix the problems in my life? Is your faith flimsy? Is it fragile? Is it feeble? Or is your faith based upon the risen Lord? And God, I will trust in you. Though you slay me, I will trust in you. Let's stand together as we come to the Lord in prayer, as we come to the Lord in response to this word. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you right now, right now, what are you going through? If, if there is a crisis in your life, if there is hardship, and I know that there is so much hardship, life is hard. Some of you may have sick parents. Some of you may be sick yourselves. Some of you may be going through a crisis with your work right now. Some of you, your kids are breaking your heart. Some of you right now are, are feeling so lonely and broken heart. Some of you are, are just feeling like, man, this world is just broken. Maybe that's you. I want to invite you. I want to invite you to, to, to hear Jesus' words. Go, go, go and you will see. Walk in my promises. Be willing to trust me that I am who I say that I am, that I've got you, that, that, that even when the mountains fall into the sea, my word will never fail. I am with you. Would you, would you come right now, if that's you, would you bring to God that crisis, that pain, that, that, that difficulty, that hardship? Would you, would you say to God, God, Give me faith. Give me faith, God, to see beyond the moment, to see beyond the immediate fix, to not demand of you, to not, to not say, God, to hold you hostage. If you don't do this, then you're not good. But God, give me the faith to trust you. God, give me a ferocious faith. God, build up that trust within me. God, would you do that? Let's come before the Lord right now. And would you do that? Would you, let's just come and, and bring our hearts to God. Would you do that right now? Let's ask him. Let's ask him, Lord, Lord, fill me. Fill my heart. Help me. Give me that faith. Increase my faith, oh God. Increase my faith. Build up that ferocious faith within me. Let's come. Let's pray right now, brothers and sisters. If you don't have that crisis, if you don't have that in your life, pray for somebody that you know who does. Let's just respond right now. Let's pray. Let's not let this moment pass us by. Jesus is saying, go, trust me. Let's heed that. Let's honor that. Let's answer the call. Let's do that right now and, and bring to him whatever it is that you're going through and ask him, help me, God. Help me, God, to trust you. Oh, God, strengthen my faith, God. Strengthen my faith. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, God, come. Build us up, God. Build us up right now, God, in this church. Oh, God, I pray. We pray, God, would you strengthen us right now, God? Lord, bind up the brokenhearted, Lord. Strengthen the weary, Lord God. Strengthen our knees, God. Strengthen our arms, God, to be able to run with you, Lord God. Oh, we pray. We pray. We invite your Holy Spirit in at this time, God. Come. Come, God. Lord, fix our eyes, not upon the miracle, but upon you, 
the Messiah. Oh God, come God. Stir, stir within us, God. Stir within us, God. Faith, build faith. Raise us up, God. Build faith, God, within us, God. Oh Lord, we pray, come. Come, oh God. Oh Lord, we pray. We pray, God. Think about those words. Say to those who are brokenhearted, who are weary, do not be afraid. Your God is mighty and strong, mighty and strong to save. Oh, Lord God, we pray, God, right now, right now, God, help us to see with eyes of faith. Help us to see beyond our circumstances. Help us to see your character, who you are, God. May trust rise. May faith arise here right now in this room, oh God. To walk away encouraged, to walk away with a deeper faith, God. A warrior, commando, overcoming faith, a ferocious faith, God. Let's stand together and let's continue to worship God, continue to be in prayer. Let's worship this Lord who is so faithful to his promises. Let's worship the Lord right now.